Welcome to Beyond Bitcoin, a podcast about all things digital assets, the global communities they are creating, the generations that are using and investing in them, and the challenges faced by the nations that are seeking to regulate them. The content of this program is not to be taken as investment advice. The opinions expressed in the program by the host and the guests are their personal opinions only. Remember, feel free to subscribe and share with like-minded friends. My name is Derek Graham. I'm the CEO of Portal Asset Management, and my co-host is Nitin Gower, Managing Director of State Street Digital Assets. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world, and welcome along to another episode of Beyond Bitcoin. My name is Derek Graham, and I am here with my friend and colleague, Nitin Gower. Good morning, Nitin. Hey, Derek, you feel, look like you're feeling much better, so congratulations on your recovery. <laughs> and looks like it's another juicy topic uh, this week. And it's not about SBF. We're talking about real stuff this week. So looking forward to it. Yeah, this week's narrative tends to be around what the institutions are saying and doing. In fact, I did a little piece in LinkedIn covering the same thing, what the institutions are pointing us to. So I thought I would run this great a couple of um, paragraphs that Coindesk has run, which is about the narrative of what Wall Street is saying at the moment, and maybe give you a little bit of little bit of comparison of what Wall Street was saying a few years ago, just to put it in perspective and ask the question why. So Wall Street is getting into Bitcoin in a big way. We all know that promising billions in new investment through ETF vehicles. Excellent. The story is now about how Main Street institutions are going to save digital assets industry by making tokens safe for investors and bringing greater regulatory clarity. Good. The wake of FTX and other scandals, it is said that the adults are now coming back into the room and promising more focus on what actually works. Wall Street's agenda now is about finding sustainable products. It's all about ETFs and tokenized securities and stable coins. We may not like this narrative, we being the industry, believe it, however, believing it's part of the purpose of the, you know, the original story of crypto, it's not, which was originally as crypto being an alternative to mainstream finance. But, you know, big institutions like to get their part in these roles, and they certainly play a positive part in building it. Larry Fink, who the industry affectionately calls Uncle Larry, you tell me, Nitin, uh, Uncle Larry, the CEO of blockchain, described the recent rally in Bitcoin as being driven by a flight to quality, hunkering of investors for safety in times of uncertainty. Very strong. Can I just mention a couple of things he said in October 2017, which was not long ago. So we're talking five years back. And he said, Bitcoin just shows you how much demand for money laundering there is in the world. And then his friend and colleague, Jamie Dimon, turned around and said, anybody that buys cryptocurrency is, and Bitcoin is, quote, stupid. Right. So may I just also note that the price that Jamie was suggesting it was stupid to buy Bitcoin at was $5,800. So... Thanks for that tip, Jamie. So, but may I say, it's just an interesting observation. I can clearly can hear a little bit of cynic in my voice, but it's an interesting observations that the institutions control the narrative 
to suit their investment stance and product offerings. And if you realize these guys are enormous, you know, they're trillion dollar organizations, funds under management and under advisement. So they are only offering to the world what they can trade in large volumes. And therefore, that's why we hear so much discussion about BTC and maybe ETH, of which they can generate fees on an institutional scale. So the remainder of the industry is still too small for the institution's fee structures and are considered tokens that are not included in the, quote, flight to quality. It is these tokens that very often have the greatest upside in our view, and they're also very often overlooked. So today, Nitin, I thought you might talk about some of the more sophisticated derivative tokens that are pointing towards where the, where the marketplace is going. And we might also have a discussion in regards to some of these tokens, too small for the big institutions to start running a narrative to saying they're, doing, they're going to be the future. But in fact, they're highly likely to be the future. What are your thoughts about how institutions run the narrative? So Derek, absolutely. I think from you know what Larry Fink from BlackRock and J- Jamie Diamond from JPM have, have talked about in the past and changed the narrative over time, it's only an indication of you know the institutional maturation on, on the perspectives that it holds about these asset and emerging asset classes. Where my focus has been, Derek, is going towards larger industry narratives, both in terms of utility, but also looking into derivative markets. And I find derivative markets, and I will discuss this a bit more in context of open interest and options and futures, they play a crucial role in even traditional finance for that matter, contributing to market liquidity, price discovery, efficient capital allocation, that oftentimes you begin to see a lot of funds looking at derivatives as a way to be able to speculate on price movement, but also to be able to gain exposure in different asset classes. Hence, you know what we have seen in terms of some of the ETFs approved in the future, which is derivative asset class of crypto or Bitcoin, as opposed to the, the ensuing flight and fight about the spot ETF, which is basically more towards a spot market, the OTC markets that, that we talk about. So derivatives are have been to me, interesting sort of signaling into where the industry is heading. And besides the narrative that the industry had in the past two weeks, the first week, of course, two weeks back was the Coin Telegraph snafu of uh, ETF approval news and that mm. put the market in tailspin. A week later, another snafu where a price was published, which was there for months and no one really noticed it on DTCC website and that caused it. But that also led to a lot of institutional demand and understanding in terms of where is the price of Bitcoin today and where it's heading as an ability to be able to invest in an enterprise-grade asset class. So I think it's given that approval of these asset classes, which is the ETF and spot ETFs, will attract institutional investors and will attract a lot of you know investing capital from a different class of institutional market as opposed to purely retail. But then I begin to look into things like open interest. And for audiences, open interest is a measure on, of, of the number of people who have invested in futures or options products. And, you know, for example, the Bitcoin futures is a derivative contract that allows investors to place a bet on the future price of PTC. And that's an example. Mm-hmm. And open interest is a term that we generally use in the industry that simply denotes 
the total number of active derivative contracts, whether it's futures or options, held by traders. And this metric to me has always demonstrated as to how many people in the markets are interested, as the term suggests, open interest in holding a position. So this is largely towards the element of what we do with futures or sort of the options. And as as you know, and as again, as a matter of updating our our listeners, that options are also derivative contracts that give a purchaser, so let's say me and you, the right to buy or sell an underlying asset. So a call option gives the right to buy, a pull or put option gives the right to sell. So we like to look at this overall aggregate value of how many options and future contracts are out there, which will indicate the overall price movement and price direction of the industry as it as it goes in terms of defining what the price is. And this is including the institutional interest that includes the retail interest. And we begin to look into the data that we get from our from derivative exchanges like Binance and OKX and Bybit, which are truly crypto exchanges. Then of course we have the CME, which is you know, Chicago Merchantile Exchange uh, as one of the institutionally favored you know, yes. futures markets. And then of course you have some of the DYDX, for example, or, or Deribit, for example, which is another exchange which has the lion's share of the market. So having described what derivatives are and why they're important, this week alone, we begin to see that the open interest in future Bitcoin futures alone, this is just one asset class, soared to about $15.83 billion, which is a significant and highest it's been since June of 2022. So it's been almost close to a year and we're getting there from the perspective of, of a little over a year of where the interest is. Deribit, on the other hand, looks at combined notional open interest, which is basically Bitcoin and Ether, as we described mm-hmm. earlier, Derek. These are two assets that are structural assets to the crypto industry, one indicating a store of value and the other a smart contract and other ecosystem that Ethereum and Ethereum competitors bring to the table. So I consider them as structural assets, is listed at historic high of $20 billion. These are Essentially, get essentially an aggregate dollar value of outstanding contracts that is specified in in Ethereum and Bitcoin deliverables, and you know, and the reporting that we get from both the derivatives of the world, which are crypto exchanges for for derivatives, as well as CME, which is largely near towards institutional. So when I'm looking at these things, the question which we should ask is why? Why are we here? Why is suddenly? in spite of the debunking of the myth that spot ETFs are not anywhere close to be approved, why has suddenly the interest really gone up? And you know, you mentioned Jamie Dimon, JP Morgan, and Morgan Stanley both issued, issued a report, which we discussed last week, that the imminent approval, barring or, or after the recent court injunction or, or direction to SEC, there's an expectation that the spot ETF will, will be approved. When we don't know, Right, an expectation is it'll happen sometime next year. So, the question is why, and I'll pause here, Derek, to see if the analysis thus far makes sense, and love to get your thoughts before we dive into why. Why is suddenly the interest? Because nothing really has changed, except we've had two back-to-back incidents, which were just to test the markets. But suddenly, the market has held on to it, and that's led to the price movement. That led is has led to the interest. The open interest led price movement. I'd love to get a pause here and get your thoughts before we go into other facets of global macro and other areas that I think has an impact 
on where the you know where the markets are heading. I saw Gary Gensler interviewed in the last seven days. Again, I always I love following Gary, what he's doing and what he's saying. Of Uncle course, Gary, for obvious reasons. Uncle Gary, Uncle Gary, and Uncle Larry. I, I couldn't agree here. more. I mean, maybe they dine <laughs> together, but at any rate, and, and Gary said that there would be eight to ten ETFs that would follow the immediate approval. And looking at his physical stance, his mannerism, and how he was saying it, he wasn't suggesting that was a bad thing. He was more making a statement saying it's likely there'll be eight to 10 that would follow any approval. So I get a sense that he thinks it's inevitable. That's just body language and looking at his stance on it. It's interesting, the statement eight to 10 talks about how the institutions are coming. So we know Grayscale are going to be there, ARK Investments are going to be there. And and of course, yeah. you know, some of the other giants have already made the statement they intend to put it there. So what I think we're seeing is just anticipation of the massive institutional, traditional investment space being able to move their glance towards Bitcoin and potentially in due course Ethereum, but certainly Bitcoin at the moment, and, and incorporate that in a small way, however, within their portfolios. But to give you an idea of what a small way is, I mean, that could be 1% or so. But when you look at the total size of the crypto marketplace at the moment, capitalization, including Bitcoin, Ethereum, and all the alts, it sits at about $1.3 trillion. And as you and I have yeah. often said, the total size of the investment marketplace is around $478 trillion, trillion. as of 2022. Yeah. So it doesn't take a lot for the major institutional investment sector to make a very big impact on this tiny marketplace. And the first thing that happens with the basics of, of fixed supply and, and increased demand tends to be an impact on price. And I think that's what the institutions and the speculators and the people that are buying futures, sells and puts are doing at the moment. They're speculating that it's coming. Right. And, but if you also look at the, so again, if I look at the investment management community and the wealth managers and family offices who are looking into, into sort of getting a better return going after alpha, the returns in traditional finance is, I think, given where we are with overall global macro and interest rates and, and, you know, the most exciting thing at this point is, is your overall treasury, which is five, six percent yeah it's all single digits but if you start looking at you know again it's double digit returns for some of these you know classic crypto assets but bitcoin and ether both in terms of options but also in terms of in terms of the the growth like you know from last week alone you've seen the price movement from 32 to 35000 dollars just for 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 bitcoin alone and i begin yeah. to then look into the other the top 20 assets and some of the structural assets that are forming the industry. And I think it's uh, fairly sizable returns, which is, I think, very hard to get in the traditional finance and the markets that have been overly saturated with equities and bonds and, and debt instruments. There is not enough juice to be extracted. And you find crypto industry, a fifth asset class, as we've oftentimes referred to from crypto perspective, Derek, that there's a massive interest from institutions to go after the above single digit returns or minuscule yes. or de minimis returns you would get from traditional equities because they've taken 
they have gotten the benefit of the low interest rate policy and cheap liquidity over the years. And they can only get so much returns. And I think there's a massive opportunity for that return on the investment in not only the direct sort of crypto assets, but the derivative instruments as well. So I feel there's a little bit of that, that the traditional markets look boring. Suddenly now crypto looks interesting, both in terms of figuring out the ability for them to buy the direct underlying asset, but also hedging their bets with the overall derivative space from that perspective. And you know, if you look at, again, the Ether options, I just look at Bitcoin, look at Ether, they really skyrocketed in the third quarter through almost about 75%. And the open interest on Ethereum was 55% higher on a quarterly basis, which means the market is bullish on both of these assets and all the underlying sort of ecosystem that the assets represent. So I think it's exciting. I still want to spend some more time in researching and find the true value of where the markets are heading because I think it's it's important for the market to head in the right direction, especially in crypto space. Otherwise, we already have just emerged from the contagion of incompetence with 3AC and FTX, the lawsuit still ensues. And, and again, the false, you know, false narratives around crypto being used for nefarious purposes. I think we begin to emerge from that narrative and it'll be great if we sort of have a much more positive impact on institutions and the investment community alike. That's my hope, at least. Yeah, certainly do. Look, there's still going to be a degree of ignorant exuberance that's going to exist within the industry because there is so much new technology getting created within it. We keep looking at the industry and thinking, right, now we've we've tokenized, you know, we've tokenized real world assets or we're going to tokenize real world assets as if the industry has arrived at a destination. It's just a train stop. Yeah. The train is still moving and it's going to incorporate things like, you know, large machine learning models operating within it and trading within it. Uh, It's going to incorporate artificial intelligence that is going to be trading and, and, and doing business online. All that'll be done on a blockchain, all that'll be done with an unusual set of what might be cryptocurrencies or crypto something or other as crypto options to certain services or products. You know, these are, these and things we can't imagine are still to come. So I still think there'll be those bubbly moments of excitement that we'll see big runs within the space, but we have seen really interesting numbers occur in the last few weeks. And that's not just Bitcoin, which as you say is up 26, 27%. Uh, It's up 116% over the rolling 12 months, which is exceptionally good. But what's interesting is that some of the major tokens like Solana, you know, although Solana's up 62% in the last month alone, you know. Yeah. And however, it's still down 87% since its real term, real time, all time high. Solana, yeah. you know, if it was to rise to $66, which would be double the current rate that it's trading at, it would still be 75% off its real time high. So it's interesting to note that a lot of the major altcoins they're down 80 and 90% from their all-time highs. And in some cases, maybe they're, they're due to be down that and they should be down that. But also in other cases, these alt tokens, as they're referred to as just simply being not Bitcoin and Ethereum, have been building teams, trading, continuing to operate during the two longest years of crypto winter that we've had. Yeah. And they're still performing well. And they're sitting there waiting 
for the market to come back and the utilization to come back. So I think it's interesting if you realize a, a token is down 90%, if it doubles in value, it's still down 80% from its all time highs. <laughs> you know what I mean? So that's an anomaly for sure. Yeah. It is It is interesting. Now, it's not a rule. It's just an observation that a lot of these alt tokens uh, are going to be highly likely to see very substantial growth, outstrip yeah. the growth of what we're focused on with this glittery gold Bitcoin, which, by the way, I hold and I think is very good. But it's important to consider the other alternative tokens too, because the Web3 environments, the unicorns, they're not going to appear with Bitcoin and Ethereum. They've already had their run. The ones that are going to occur are going to be these extraordinary alts that are providing various solutions in, in Web3, yeah. AI and DeFi solutions in the future, my view anyway. Yeah. And so two more data points, right? Again, I didn't just spend all my time in looking into derivative markets and price movement because oftentimes they are sentiment driven. I want to mm. go back to building and utility. As you mentioned, two long years of winters and people yes. are hibernating and people are building to find the next wave of the bull market and to be able to progress. A few interesting nuggets. The real world assets. So tokenized US treasury markets, which is in, like you know treasury instruments like money market funds, for example, are considered real world assets because they represent a real world sort of instrument, which is US treasury. So again, apparently there was some competitive element that most of these early days of treasury uh, instruments were mostly on, on, on Stellar, which is another blockchain ecosystem. And suddenly now Ethereum has toppled Stellar as a top blockchain for tokenized government bonds. And the increase from 100 million to 698 million. So it's a 600% increase Ooh. in the crypto's real world sort of race. And now you yes. begin to see the recent entrance like Solana and Polygon so you begin to find this real world asset move into the other chains as they represent the ability for them for us to be able to not just tokenize real world assets, but to be able to provide liquidity and trading on traditional blockchain. So that's a significant, I think, shift, which actually largely has gone unnoticed in this entire mm -hmm. fiasco and the conversation that we're having around the, the suddenly 35,000 mark of Bitcoin. Second thing I think, Derek, is Again, focusing on utility and building uh, on Solana, the Vanek, which also actually has a Solana ETP or ETF, predicts that Solana could have an average trading volume of 3 and 35 by 2030. So yes, it has a five-year projection and it's looked into things like its revenue and the fee that's collected by protocol grew by 20%. Mm. I begin to then research and find a bunch of new DeFi protocols, a bunch of decentralized exchanges and Solana has, which was notorious for Solana going down every so often, which is the entire network failing, which has a pause in, in transaction processing, suddenly was has been up for the longest duration of time without actually failing. So you begin to see an increase in transaction volume, increase in projects, resiliency of the protocol. And it was finally able to shed some of the baggage it had from the FTX days. Yes, And that's probably why Solana actually has begun to see this, hey, it's, it's viable for us to conduct business on this new coming up and coming chain. And because it's still growing, the growth projections and anticipation of growth is much higher on that network. So that's those two data points were interesting. 
There's something else, Derek, that I noticed. I'd love to get your thoughts on it. So you know how Bitcoin has its own ecosystem and network. Ethereum has its own ecosystem and network. And every layer one protocol has some business and some liquidity that's trapped in these fragmented ecosystems, similar yes. to our existing financial system. There's a lot of trapped liquidity. So I begin to then look into interoperability protocols. These are Chainlink and Cosmos and Polkadots of the world. Mm. Because if they are the ones who are supposed to connect these various chains, they are also supposed to imply movement of liquidity or seamless movement of liquidity between the various ecosystem, between Solana and Ethereum or Stellar and Ethereum and so on and so forth. So for example, if I have a, with my previous metric, a, a treasury instrument on, on Stellar, or USDC, which is a stablecoin on Stellar, how do you facilitate a movement from Stellar to Ethereum and, and do these protocols, have they grown over time? And my findings, Derek, Chainlink is now, I would say, 15th largest cryptocurrency, beating Polkadot this year alone, because they've done some sizable projects. And it's 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 increased by 6.74%, sits at 6. Sort of $4 billion. Polkadot is number 16 now, which is $5.27 billion. Cosmos active daily user grew by 182%. And it's surpassed Bitcoin and Ethereum as one of the altcoins in terms of the overall active users over time. DYDX, which is sort of a, a decentralized exchange, which was early on using Stark X, which is a layer two scaling protocol, has moved its, you know, its, its project to Cosmos. So these are building activities. And, mm -hmm. and I found that the utility, the usage, the number of projects have significantly grown on these, on these, on these chains, which to me is encouraging that it's not purely driven by momentum, the price movement. It's also driven by fundamentals in terms of growth and usage and utility of these protocols. I think, and I want, I don't make predictions, but I think that the upward movement of pricing, which is the indication that the crypto winter is over, we may be at the precipice of, of that statement coming to be true. But I'll pause here and, and, and love to get your thoughts, Derek. Mm, very much so. It's, it's really interesting that we go back now to the basics of these major layer one protocols and the interoperability between them. You know, the layer one protocols, as we've often said in the past, can be considered as a sovereign state, like a nation. And the two greatest examples of that might be the island of Singapore, because it's an island, and the island of New York, because it's an island. And the interoperability of the, of the telecommunications groups that are keeping them connected with the rest of the world and enabling them to do business with the rest of the world. And there is generation of income and opportunities and technology to be generated out of that interoperability in linking these sovereign states together. And that's what we're seeing with some of these extraordinary protocols like Chainlink and Polkadot occurring too. And, you know, my view is that we will see very substantial growth in those protocols over the following 12 years, uh, sorry, over the following 12 months, and that this will be reflected in the price of those protocols over this following 12-month period. And, and I hesitate to say, but here I go, here's my prediction. I think they will outperform Bitcoin uh, in, in their price increase over this period of time. 
for very different reasons, by the way. What's, what Bitcoin's getting invested in is speculation, the holding of wealth. What the other ones are getting invested in is the growth of this industry and the, and sure. the belief that the industry is going to be there. Um, so there you go. Hell, it's a prediction. So <laughs> that's that's my view on it. Didn't you? <laughs> yeah. Come back and complain no, in twelve months, but that's we, my view. We, we'll hold we'll hold you to it, Derek. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> but it's this this extraordinary period where I've occasionally used this term that I got very used to in the in the realm of public companies, and that's reverse takeover. And a reverse takeover is when a very small company buys a large company. And it does it simply by issuing stock in that small company. And the large company ends up owning stock in the small company and a reverse takeover occurs. The most traditional way reverse takeovers used to occur is when uh, a private company that was very sizable wanted to list on the exchange. And so a small public listed company would issue stock and it would end up being on the exchange by virtue of owning all the stock, a reverse takeover. I think that we're going to see the biggest reverse takeover in human history. And that is a reflection of its value, because that's what an acquisition of a private company and putting it on, the, on a public stock exchange is, a reflection of value of real-world assets in the digital world of digital crypto assets and cryptocurrencies. And by doing that, this $1.3 trillion asset class is starting to consume this $478 trillion asset class, not in one go, not in six years, maybe not in 20 years, pretty highly likely, it will ultimately reflect the vast majority of traditional assets in this form of digital asset, because like the stock exchange, it's the best way to trade a, a private company is by making it public and enabling it to, to trade. I think we'll see an enormous amount of, of real-world assets and cash flows, bonds, financial instruments, all being converted to digital assets and, and consumed into this space, making it an enormous reverse takeover. What do you think, Nitin? I think we should dedicate, in fact, I think, Derek, certainly a very profound idea. To get to meaningful conversation of how that's going to happen, I think we should take some time, perhaps in the next few episodes, and talk about the market infrastructure and the market structure. So mm -hmm. exist, traditional finance has a certain market structure, has certain sort of uh, financial primitives, the collateralization, the borrowing, the lending, the cust custody and the market makers and prime brokerage, the credit equation. That is complex web of what makes up the financial yes. structure of the existing finance. And, and I think just by the virtue of the disruptive tech that DLT blockchain and the digital asset that represents that industry, I think there's going to be a little bit of the disruption, which is, I think, where you're heading with this, is what will this technology imperative do to take over this lion's share, the $470 plus trillion market that exists for traditional finance? Can this small $1.3 trillion as it stands today, with its technical prowess take over that space. So I think we should look into Clash. We should look into some of the market infrastructures that exist and how does the technology sort of change that market structure and 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 change the landscape of that model to opine on the statement that you just mentioned. But I, I do agree. I think that at some point, this is nothing, this only has a positive upward growth trajectory as I see it. 
Yeah. That's a great topic. Let's do that because it's easy for me to make this sweeping statement that it's going to be the single yeah. greatest reverse takeover in the world. But as you say, you know, the financial primitives of the existing system have been built over the last 100, 150 years. And yeah. despite how extraordinarily quickly crypto assets are in this Darwin kind of environment where they grow, die, rebuild and grow stronger again, it's still not there to be able to consume this industry. It's still not there to be able to reflect all the services that the main traditional industries have in place. But that's what we're here for. It's the journey towards that occurring. And we'll narrate the journey as it goes. Nitin, great day talking about the fact that there's a change in view of what's happening in this industry ironically driven by the institutions that used to be the great adversaries only five years ago, as we've just said earlier on in the piece. But it is a change in view and anything that brings it to the forefront, anything that enables the education to people of what's happening in this space so that people understand this is one of the great revolutions of mankind is a good thing and uh, great to it share. Is. And likewise, and I'm so glad that we talk about something more positive and growth and not just talking regulatory and legal and legal drama. It's something different, which is exciting, Derek. So glad to be having this conversation and looking forward to next week. Terrific. Now, next week, we have Ben Roson, who is a senior member of Binance Australia. And that's going to be interesting because, of course, Binance plays a big role in what's happening, both controversially and also by size of trade. Sure. And, and I think no doubt with you asking questions and me, we'll ask him a few controversial questions we and should. see what Binance's view is. And respectfully, of course, because that's, that's how Always. we roll. Of course, no <laughs> question about it. Yes, absolutely. Good on you. Bye for now. Thank you, Derek. Bye. We hope you enjoyed our weekly conversation. If you have any questions, comments, or suggested topics, please contact Nitin Gower or myself on the emails displayed here or via our LinkedIn profiles. Feel free to subscribe and share with like-minded friends. Stay well, inquisitive, and engaged. See you next week.